Well, I bring greetings from the Cedar Lake campus. I'm really glad to be with you this morning. And I hope that you had a Christ-centered, a really wonderful Christmas. And my wife has reminded me that it's still Christmas until her birthday's over, which is today. So it's Christmas today. Merry Christmas. You know, this is the time, this week between Christmas and New Year's, where we start to think about 2019, right? We, we craft resolutions, and we make projections about the year to come, and we set goals. And many have already projected 2019 to be a, a sort of year. And for instance, this happens regularly, but the Chinese calendar says that this is the year of the pig. So um, I don't know what that means, really, but... Some of you might. I know it's, they have a, a, a calendar that kind of rotates years. The year of the pig, that's this year. You might not have known that, and you might not care. All right, the UN has decided that 2019 will be the international year of the periodic table. I remember being a kid and, and looking at that periodic table that I had to memorize and thinking, I'm never going to use that thing. Why are they making me memorize it? So this is a whole year where we can be reminded that 99% of us did not need to memorize that periodic table. But for 1% of you, I think you probably use it, and that's amazing. You'll love this year. There are financial analysts. Uh, the, the financial gurus have predicted that 2019 will be a year of financial slowdown. Now, there's debate about this, and some are extreme. They're saying it's a year of a crash, and, and they point to things like the, the Brexit saga and just the um, U.S.-China trade war, and they think, well, may maybe it's going to be a real slowdown year because of all the success that we've had. Um, some say it's not going to be that much change, but just be sober-minded, they say. Well, I don't know enough about all of that, okay? But I do know that this time of year, we love to talk about prosperity. We all love the idea of a prosperous new year. And I found this picture online, and it says, Happy New Year. Let's wish each other a happy new year that unfolds sheer bliss and happiness for all. And the more I thought about that, the more ridiculous I realized it is. It's ridiculous because uh, for a lot of people, 2019 is not going to be a year of sheer bliss. The unfortunate truth is that for some people, this is going to be the hardest year you've ever experienced. Some of you might experience some bliss. I'm not thinking sheer bliss. But we all will have different years. My goal this morning is to try to help us be prepared for this year, whatever it might bring, whatever God might bring into our life. Whether it be a year of bliss or whether it be a, a year of suffering, we're prepared for it. And we can do that if we enter the year humbly. So I say to you this morning, humble new year. And some of you are like, that's not very inspiring, Mark. It's, it's not very, uh, you know, humble new year. Well, when we look at our text James chapter 4, this is the exact attitude we're supposed to have as we prepare, as we plan, as we look ahead. So turn with me to James 4. You'll see the verses on the screen, but I'll be referencing them a few times. So you might want to open up your Bible, James 4. Find that in the back of your Bible, the book of James, and chapter 4. We'll be there in just a moment. Now, generally speaking, we as human beings, we struggle with humility. It's just a human thing. We struggle to be humble. And I believe that a lot of us are not very self-aware. We think of ourselves a little bit better than we are. We have an inflated view of ourselves. I mean, how else do you explain those horrific contestants that end up on American Idol? And they're totally tone deaf. Like, I know that their parents lied to them for many years. 
but we all like to think of ourselves as better than we actually are. That's a human problem. But we as Americans, I think we have a couple extra roadblocks, a couple extra hurdles to get over if we're going to be humble. Just think about what it's like to be an American. We're supposed to be resourceful, right? That, that get-or-done spirit, can-do attitude. That's why MacGyver was popular when I was a kid. You just figure it out with whatever you have. That's American, you know? Add to that the idea that we're very prosperous. I mean, compared to the rest of the world, we are doing quite well. Most of us are very comfortable. It's been said that wealth allows people an independence from God that can be dangerous for their spiritual state. Think about that. Wealth can be actually something that causes us to to be independent from God. Truth be told, half of the time we don't live like there is a God. We, we tend to go about our business, do our thing, and oh yeah, that's right, there's God. We live this kind of functional atheism where we, we would never say there's no God, and certainly we believe that God is con- in control of everything. But the way that we're living, the, the decisions we're making, we're almost living like there's no God. That's a functional atheism. That's exactly the situation of the people in our text here in the book of James. James 4, 13 through 17. Let's read that together and follow along as I read. James 4, 13 through 17. Here's God's word. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now James, the brother of Jesus, is writing. And he's writing this letter to scattered Christians. Christians who are out, you know, outside of Jerusalem kind of in different areas, and the letter would have traveled around. And, and he's writing, one of his main purposes is to help people live out their faith practically in a world of worldliness, like surrounded by people who are worldly. How do you live out your faith practically? So he talks about works and living out your faith. He talks about worldliness quite a bit. And the picture that James paints here, it would have been pretty familiar for the average Christian in the diaspora that's scattered about because they are in areas where commerce is really at its height. People are trading, especially in these Hellenistic cities where everyone spoke the same language. So a lot of believers are trying their hand at business or trade or or what have you. Now, because they are surrounded by unbelievers, surrounded by these worldly people, it's very tempting to live like the rest of the world, to pick up the, the, the tendencies or the priorities that the world has. So when you're doing business, when you're making plans, when you're doing all that, it was very tempting for them to start to move to a worldly default mode. And nothing is really different today. Uh, Today, you are scattered. We are scattered throughout a world that by and large does not have a biblical perspective. It's a worldly culture. So the average person you talk to, when they make their plans, when they look towards 2019, it's pretty much mostly about themselves, maybe about those that they love. It's not about the glory of Christ. And when they make business plans, when they make projections, again, they're thinking 
primarily about themselves and those they care about. They're not thinking about Jesus Christ. So the same thing applies today that applied back then. We're surrounded in a culture that does not love Jesus Christ. Is that rubbing off on us? It's very tempting for us to default to some kind of functional atheism. We would never say that God doesn't exist or that he isn't in control of absolutely everything, but we're living sometimes like he is. Now, in this particular section here, James is addressing Christian businessmen who have a plan. I mean, they have it all figured out. You can see the text. They have the next year figured out. They know where they're going, a certain city. They know how much time they're going to spend there, one year. They know what they're going to do. They're going to trade. And they even know the outcome. They say, we're going to make a profit. This is what we're going to do. It's a well-oiled plan. And they have thought of everything. Except, what does God think about this plan? What does God want for us this next year? I want you to think about your plans this morning, even as we get into the text a little bit. I want you to just think about where are you in life? Your career, your house, you know, maybe you're getting ready to buy a new car. Some of you, you're thinking about what college you're going to go to. Uh, some of you aren't, aren't quite that far reaching with your goals. You're like, where am I going to eat after this sermon? And uh, how am I going to use that gift card that I got for Christmas? I'm thinking about that right now. And if you're scrolling Amazon, stop right now. Okay? But we have plans, and some of them are small, and some of them are big. And, and the thrust of this text is that every single decision, whether it seemed really small, how to use a gift card, whatever, or really big, you know, who to marry, what to do in your vocation, every single one of them is supposed to be submitted to the will of God, is supposed to be prayed about, is supposed to be, what does God think? Many Christians sometimes say things like, well, God doesn't care about such and such. Like, does God really care whether I watch the Bears play later today? Some of you are like, of course he does. <laughs> I might watch because um, they need to win for the Eagles to have any chance, okay? Does God care about that? Well, in my house, my wife and girls hate football. It's my wife's birthday today. So for me to sit there and watch football and expect people to serve me, well, maybe that is something God cares about right? So even the small little things, it, the idea is that there's this dependence on God as we walk throughout life and we make little decisions and big decisions, we bounce those off of God and we just kind of have, have a, prayer, a state of prayer and we say, God, what do you want me to do about this? We, we, we get into his word, we consider every decision based on the direction of his word. This is the way a relationship works, an idea of dependence, interdependence. I, mean, I don't know how many of you are married here, but I'm sure many of you are. Have you ever made a decision without asking your spouse first, without talking to them, and you later regretted it? Yeah, well, it can end in epic failure, and I feel led not to share any personal examples this morning, okay? But when you're in a close relationship, you value that person's perspective. You want their input. I need my wife's perspective. Like, I, trust me, I need it. And, and we're in this relationship, and for me to go ahead and do something without talking to her about it could be very foolish it could be very unwise it could be sinful but how much more so for us to just not consider God's perspective to not get into his word to not consider is there any biblical instruction on this to not even at least just pray and say God make me aware if there's something I should know with this that's very arrogant that's very independent so I want to give you three reasons why we should humbly trust in God as we make our plans this year. So first this morning, our knowledge, this is right from the text, our knowledge is so very limited. 
Why should we enter this year humbly? Why should we be dependent on God? Well, first of all, our knowledge is very limited. I want to read verse 13 again for you, just the beginning of verse 14 as well. Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. They're making a whole year plan, but they don't even know what the next 24 hours will include. And we get this because many of you have walked into work thinking it was a normal day and only to hear that uh, we're downsizing and you're going to lose your job. And then all of a sudden, all your plans, all your goals, your vacation, it all has to be put on hold. Some of us have gotten a phone call where in just a moment, our whole life changed. A lot can happen in 24 hours. And we have no way of projecting that. Our knowledge is very limited. I mean, we are, we are bound by space and time. We can't possibly know the future. So we can't know what 24 hours from now will be. But think about God. God is not limited by space and time. God's knowledge is different than our knowledge. Consider Psalm 139, and God's word says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. God knows our heart. God knows every single thing about us. In fact, we know God knows us better than we know ourselves. Jeremiah says that we often deceive ourselves because of our sinfulness, because the heart is sinful, desperately sick. Who can understand it? In the text it says, well, God is the one who searches the heart and the mind. So God, he knows everything, what's going to happen tomorrow. He knows where our hearts are. He knows our motives. He knows our sin. We should be real sober-minded about how our sinfulness might even affect our plans, our goals for 2019. Consider for a moment that maybe there is a bit of selfishness. Maybe there's a bit of sinfulness in even what we're desiring. For example, just take the trait of confidence. Confidence is something that seems pretty benign and maybe even admirable for for somebody to be confident. Confidence can be good except when it's self-reliance. Sometimes confidence is veiled arrogance. I'll never forget one of the most embarrassing situations of my entire life. I'm going to share it with you. So my third year of playing the trumpet and performing in recitals and whatnot, um, I was getting ready that day. And here's how it went in my mind. The first year I played in the recital, I won first place. This is back when they gave first, second, and third places at recitals. They did used to do that. Um, I don't know if it's good or bad, whatever. But, okay, I got first place. Second year I played I got first place. So the third year, I didn't say this out loud, but I actually remember having this thought, I'm going to get first place. I got this. Like, I'm better than I was before. I practiced like crazy that day. I was ready. I knew my piece. You had to memorize them. I I, I knew it. Apparently, I practiced too much because my lip muscle was like jello. When I got up there that evening, the bright light shining on me, I went down in flames. It was so bad. I mean, I couldn't get the notes out right. It was like, just imagine it really bad. That's what it was. It was like, like that kind of thing. 
And I remember running outside of that auditorium and finding a spot in my car and just crying. I mean, I'm an elementary school student here. And I, before, like, I think while I was in the car, it hit me. All right, God, I know why this happened. I was pretty arrogant. I was confident. Like, is confidence bad? Well, not necessarily. But when you go into that knowing this is what I'm going to do because I'm good, God wanted to teach me a lesson that day, and I learned it. I learned it really hard. We are most susceptible to the pitfall of arrogance when we're doing something we're good at, something that we're skilled in and we're talented in. Maybe it's your vocation or I don't know, but whatever you are good at. Think about that this morning. That's probably where you're going to be tempted to be arrogant. It's in your wheelhouse, you know. But when we're outside of our element, that's when we're far more humble. This week we had those, uh, that storm and we had power out. A lot of you lost power, right? And uh, we lost power at my house. Uh, we live in Cedar Lake, so you know that happens a lot. But. And I looked out back and a tree had been uprooted and it was laying against the power lines. And I was like, oh man, what do I do with that? I actually thought I caused the blackouts. Um, I called up NIPSCO. Well, for a moment, I, I pictured myself with a chainsaw, and I was like, how do I, what do I, I'm like, no, I'm calling NIPSCO. So I call NIPSCO. They say, well, I don't know if that's the problem or not, sir, but it's noted, okay, whatever. And so a few hours later, the power came back on, which was great, except for the fact that now the electricity was pulsing through the wires against the tree, then burning the tree, then smoke, then sparks, then fire, and Jen and I are like, uh, do we, what do we, do we call like the fire department? We call 911. It start, the, the fire starts spreading on the tree. We're like, okay, call. So we call the fire department or fi- call 911. They come out. They deal with the situation. They, um, they let NIPSCO know. Uh, oh, and, and then it did knock out power for my neighborhood. So I was responsible for the second one. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, I stood there helplessly. I, I, it's, I'm way outside my, I cannot do that. I can't fix the electricity for my neighborhood. I just sat there looking out the glass window, awkwardly gawking at all of, this is, by this time it's dark, they have lights on, it's raining. I'm like, this is fascinating, Jen. I'm like, is it weird that we're just watching them out our back window? She's like, no, I'm sure they get it all the time, you know. So we're watching them, but I can't do anything. I'm just there letting the experts take care of it. So they do it. They cut down the tree, they string a new line, they do all that stuff. And... Um, it would have been pretty arrogant for me to think I can fix the electricity in my neighborhood. I'm just going to go out there, get a chainsaw, climb up an electrical pole in the rain. Nah, that would have been a really, really bad idea. But it's actually even more arrogant for me to think that I can control space and time, that I can project what's going to happen, that I am in control of my little kingdom, that God does not need to be consulted. His power is no less than electricity. He's the one who's in control. And so this idea of me being arrogant because I think I have something under control, it's, it's crazy. We should plan humbly because our knowledge is so very limited, more limited than we realize, but also because our life is so very short. Second this morning. Our life is so very short. I want to read the second half of verse 14 again. Here's what the text says. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Here in James 4, we're compared to a mist, a steam, a vapor. And the point of the verse is that from the grand scheme of things, our life is but a short amount of time. It's brief. Even if we live a long life, it's but a vapor from an eternal perspective. Now, I don't think that's the only thing we're supposed to get from the verse. I think it's talking about the brevity of our life, but I also believe God wants us to understand that our life is finite, 
that it cannot be controlled. It quickly vanishes. It appears, and then it disappears. And if I had mist here, if I had fog or smoke, I, I can't manipulate it. I can't make it do what I wanted to do. Water in that state is not like that. So if water was snow, then I can make a snowman. But it's not. It's mist. It's vapor. All of a sudden, it vanishes. And it is not only short and brief, it's outside of our control. There's a real sobriety here, verse 14, if you think about this. What is James saying but, but this? We all like to think that our life is weighty, right? Like, I am here on this earth. I really matter. My existence is monumental. But James says our life is a vapor. To, to borrow Pastor Dan's terminology from last week, all of our lives are historical. Very few of us are historic. Right? Very few of us are epic. Very, very few names make it into the history books. And so our life is not as weighty as we might think it is. Sometimes we like to think of ourselves as a renaissance man or woman. And like, I can do, yeah, I can do whatever. You know, I got it. For a pastor to climb an electric pole with a chainsaw in the rain is a very bad idea. Okay? Maybe we should just stick, stay in our lanes, stick to what God has called us to do, try to humbly do what we're supposed to do. But a lot of us, we like to try to figure it all out, fix it on our own, do it ourselves. Even last night, I had to jump my vehicle, and I am sitting there going, okay, negative positive first, like I don't want to die. And um, it's amazing to me that how when we're in those situations where we're not in our, you know, comfort zone, all of a sudden I'm literally praying, God, I, please, I don't want to get electrocuted. Like, please protect me. You know, but often we're not, we're not making those prayers. We're not saying those prayers. So James 4 is telling us our life is short. It is finite. But what he is not saying is that our life is insignificant. He's not saying, well, your life is a vapor, so it doesn't matter. No, because if you read the whole book of James, the entire book says quite the contrary. What we do with our life, what we do in the few years that we have on this earth, it really matters. It matters for us, and it matters for other people. James talks in this, in this letter about how if we say we're a Christian, but our life is full of selfishness, and, and we only care about us and not other people, then our, our faith is not even... It's not even real. If we don't care about loving others, we only care about us, we only care about our plans, only care about our dreams, he says, well, guess what? Your faith isn't really applying to your life. It's not even real faith. So what we do, how we live here, it does matter. There's two ways to live, really. There's the way that says it's about me and those around me that I really care about. That's kind of these merchants here in this text. They're saying, this is what I'm going to do. Or there's living for the glory of Christ, the glory of God, for the good of, of all na our neighbors. Two different ways to live. I want to take just a minute, I want to speak uh, directly to younger people. So if you're a child, a teen, maybe a young adult or so, and I, I remember that, you know, and you are, you got your whole life ahead of you. Your whole life is ahead of you. And some of you are probably thinking, like, I'll get serious about heaven and hell and God, like, when I'm old, you know, 40, like, my age, you know, like, Ah, when, I'm, when I'm that, you know, then I'll think about these things. But right now, I'm, I'm good. Some of you might not even be listening right now because you're like, whatever. But I want to remind you that none of us are guaranteed 40 years. None of us. We are not guaranteed a day. Verse 14 of our text says, we don't even know what tomorrow brings. What does tomorrow in the fifth grade bring? Well, we don't know. Wait, you're out of school, so 
Never mind. What's tomorrow at home bring? You don't know. And it's no less true for the adults in this room. Some of you, you know, you've got a pretty good handle on life and your career is going okay and you have your ducks in a row like the guys in our passage here. But again, 2019 is not a given. Nothing is a given. He's reminding us. James is saying, hey, you don't even know the next 24 hours. Do not be so bold or brazen to plan your whole year without consulting God. How important is today? Right now, today, how important is it? Well, if you are not sure where you stand with God, if you are, if you've not committed to Jesus Christ, given your life to Him, and laid down your life and said, I am yours, God, I want to follow Jesus Christ, and today is of utmost importance. And I want to encourage you, talk to someone before you leave the room today. Before you leave this building, find one of us. There'll be a prayer team up here. Find somebody and say, I'm not sure I'm ready for 2019. I'm not sure that my sins are dealt with. I'm thinking I'm going to stand before God one day, and I don't know if I'm ready. So how important is today? It's very important. And for believers, we need to consider our creator is the one who's in control, our sustainer. He gives me tomorrow. Life is very short. And so I want to remind you, if you're not a believer, today is the day of salvation. If you are a believer, today is the day of relying on the Lord, seeking his face, a recommitment to him before you start a new year and saying, God, I don't know that I've really talked to you about this year. So we should plan humbly because our knowledge is limited, because our life is so very short, but also, lastly, our will is subject to God's will. Our will, what we want to do, what we plan, it is completely subject to God's will. The very first uh, word of verse 15 is the word instead. It says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And that word instead, the Greek is anti, anti or anti, the idea of opposite. So look at verse 13, if you have your Bible open, verse 15, we're talking about opposite attitudes here, opposite perspectives. Verse 13, it's, hey, I'm going to do this. We're going to do this. And there's no thought for God. And then in verse 15, it says, instead, the antithesis to this is, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So verse 15 instructs us how we should make our plans, acknowledging our will is only accomplished if it's in concert with God's will. The only way you get what you want and your dreams and goals for 2019 actually happen is if that's in concert with God's will. If God says, I wish that as well. I want that to happen. Those that James is writing to, they're forgetting this. They're not acknowledging this. But I don't even think it's like an oversight. Because if you look at the text, it says they are boasting in their arrogance. So they're purposefully ignoring God's will. They're arrogant. They know that they're arrogant and they're boasting in it. Well, that is no way for a Christian believer to be living. And I do believe James is writing to believers who are scattered. And so these believers are living a functional atheism. They are living in such a way that is completely inappropriate for a believer to say, yeah, I got this and I'm boasting in the fact that I've got this. It's kind of like saying, I'm going to win first place in this recital. Like, I'm going to do it. And I kind of knew it was a little cocky, but I didn't care. Donald Burdick says this, For a believer to leave God out of his plans is an arrogant assumption of self-sufficiency, a tacit declaration of independence from God. It is to overlook reality. 
That declaration of independence from God, that should be scary to us, to think that we would ever declare, I'm good, I don't need you, God. It says tacit because it's not something we would ever say, but it's, it's there. And the reality is that we are not independent from God. We're not. This is not a closed system. It's not like everything you see is all there is. There is a God. There is a supernatural realm. I cannot control everything. The the, the reality is, is that there is a God. If he doesn't want it to happen, it doesn't happen. If he wants it to happen, it happens. Even the Greeks and the Romans understood this. So as, as James writes, a very common expression in that day was, if the gods will. So they had a lot of gods they believed in, and they would say, if the gods will, this happens. So James kind of takes a phrase that's popular. He baptizes it and says, if the Lord wills, Jesus Christ, the Lord wills, we will do this or that. But even the, the common person of that day would have said, oftentimes, if the, if the gods will, because they recognize there is another system, there's another sphere. And I know this is becoming less popular today. More and more people believe all you see is what there is. You live, you die, and that's it. But that is not the truth. And many people throughout history have, have understood that. God is reminding us here that, that this is not reality. When we act like this, it's not living like a believer. It's not living in reality. Well, I think all of us probably have some plans for this next year. Right? You probably have, have, have something you hope to accomplish. You want to see something happen in 2019. A couple random things that are supposed to happen in 2019 just for your enlightenment, okay? Number one, there's going to be a royal baby. I mean, most people don't care about that, but some of you do. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle are having a baby, okay? That's supposed to happen very early 2019. The Women's World Cup, soccer, no one cared for a service either, yeah. (laughs) But the women actually made it. The guys didn't make it from the U.S., okay? So they'll be playing. I'll be watching some of that. And then this one, I, I, young people, you might want to note this. There's a $100 million Fortnite championship. I don't know. I, I read this. I think it's accurate. A $100 million grand prize for a Fortnite. If you don't know what that is, ask your kid or your grandkid or whatever. They'll tell you what Fortnite is. That's supposed to happen this year. The band Kiss will perform their final tour before they supposedly retire. Oh, well, it's supposed to happen in 2019. Here's one that's closer to our, our home here. This auditorium is supposed to be finished in 2019, right? <laughs> Amen. And as I was preparing for this sermon, even at the same time, I was, I was praying through and thinking through some goals for the Cedar Lake campus for 2019. And even, and especially, our kingdom plans, our kingdom goals, our church dreams and goals should be bathed in prayer, especially when we're talking about the things that God is doing in this world. We must go to him. We must consult him. It was a good reminder to me as I was just looking through this, like, God, none of this stuff will happen if, if you don't will it. God, show me if there's anything that you want me to change. Show, me, show us leaders if there's something that you want us to do differently. We all make plans, but not a one of them will happen unless God says it will happen. So one might ask, well, how can we know if our will lines up with God's will? Give us something practical, Pastor Mark. Like how, how, how can I measure my goals for this year according to what God wants me to do? Well, I do believe there are some ways to do that. God has revealed us to us much in his word. He tells us what he loves. He tells us what he hates. The other thing he does is he reveals his 
plan. What is God doing in the world? Just read this book and you'll see it's all about reclaiming a people for himself. That's his heart. That's what he's doing in our world. And so as you get into this word, you start to understand, oh, God hates that. God loves that. Here's what God's doing in the world. Here's a couple practical application questions that you can jot down if you want. And as you're going into the new year, as you're making your plans, your New Year's resolutions, whatever it might be, ask yourself these questions. Number one, are my plans sinful or self-focused? Are there any scriptures that prohibit what I'm doing? I mean, that's, of course, the first level right there. Are any of the things that I'm planning on doing spoken against in the word of God? Well, if that be the case, obviously, out of God's will. Is it self-focused? And this one's a little harder to determine, but you need to pray and say, God, are my motivations selfish here? I don't know if they are. Please show me. Number two, are my plans consistent with God's heartbeat? What does that mean? Well, what is God's heartbeat? God's heartbeat is the reclaiming of people for himself. Is there any way that this is consistent with that? Is it against that? It's a question to ask. Third, are my plans made with an eternal perspective? This is a convicting one, isn't it? Because this life is so short, we're going to spend eternity in heaven or in hell, depending on uh, our faith in Jesus Christ. But when we think about those of us who are believers, we have an eternity in God's presence, worshiping and glorifying Him. And we, we have to ask ourselves, what I'm going to do, what I'm going to purchase, where I'm going to go, all of this stuff, does it have any eternal weight? It, am, I, am I thinking about eternity at all? It might convict us. Are my plans humble? It's kind of like the selfish one, but is it humble or am I... Pastor Mark, you're speaking to me from God's word here this morning because I think I am a little too confident, and that confidence is veiled arrogance. Is it humble? Here's one. It's not up there. Have I prayed about it? Have I even prayed about it? I would suspect that here there's at least one person who's on the brink of making a very, very important decision, and you're realizing that you have not even prayed about it yet. You haven't even gone to God with it. You haven't asked him what he thinks. You haven't searched his word. So essentially what you're doing is you're standing in the rain with a chainsaw ready to climb an electric pole, right? You need to step away from the tree and you need to call the experts. You need to, you need to go to God. You say, God, this is out. I, I think I can handle this, but I know in reality I cannot. I need you. I need your wisdom. I need your guidance. I need your loving kindness just to live we should plan humbly because our knowledge is very limited, our life is so very short, our will is subject to God's will. Verse 17 sums it up for us. I want to read it one more time. Verse 17 says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And so James reminds us that there are sins of commission, the ones that we do. And we often think about that, right? Like at the beginning of a year, we're thinking fresh and uh, God, forgive me, I want, I want a year of, of, of holiness, and we think I'm not going to do this, this, and this, and this, and that. But there's also sins of omission. When we know that we're supposed to do something, when we've been convicted by God's word, and yet we do not do it, that is a sin, James says. So we've heard very, you know, very plainly from God's word today, if I do not go to God, if I do not consult him, if I do not rely on him and depend on him for these decisions, then it is sin. So what are you going to do? Are you going to take this home? Are you going to say, okay, well, let me think about my plans and goals. If you don't have any goals or plans and maybe you've been like, this is no, no big deal, no problem, I'm good. <laughs> well, maybe make some goals, make some plans 
and then bathe them in prayer and say, God, I just want what you want. That's a hard prayer to pray because we don't always want that. But to just say, God, I submit my will to you because honestly, you're in control anyway. And I place myself under you and I say, here's my plans, God. Here here are my dreams. Here are my goals. If you want them to happen, let them happen. If you don't want them to happen, then make them go down in flames. If you want to show me something or teach me something that I should change, please do that. So we're commanded in James 4 to plan humbly and avoid boasting. Will we obey? I want to close by giving you one thing that you can boast about in 2019, okay? So if you're like, I need something to boast about. All right, here's one thing. The only thing, all right, Galatians 6.14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Only thing you can boast about as a Christian, the only thing God says, Paul says here, is Jesus Christ. Is what Jesus Christ did on the cross in your behalf when he, when he was crucified and he took your sins upon himself and when he gave you his righteousness. The thing about that is that does not produce in us arrogance. That produces in us absolute humility and worship because the only thing I did was sin. What he did was give me new life. What he did was resurrect me. He actually made me new. And so when we spend our time boasting on the cross, it kind of takes care of the other boasting. You know, had I been thinking about Jesus Christ and my salvation when I got on that stage to play my trumpet, who knows? what? Maybe I would have been able to play. I don't know. Because what it does is it allows us to see ourselves in the right perspective. We are not as weighty as we think we are. We're not as amazing as we think we are. We're not a Renaissance man or woman. I mean, even if we are, we're not God. There's only one God. There's only one Savior. He's Jesus Christ. Let's boast in him.